Well, hey, everybody, so thankful you chose to spend some time with us this weekend. I wanted to let you know that your lovable Keystone staff and board have been actively dreaming and planning about what it looks like for us to once again gather together on the weekends, perhaps sooner than later. Please be on the lookout for an emailed survey from us this week asking for your input as we try to pick a date for our grand reopening. That said, I wanted to share a moment that underscores the complexity of trying to make that decision in the world in which we currently live. As many of you know, restaurants opened this week for dine-in service, and to celebrate, Randy and I went to lunch on Tuesday at the new electric cheetah in Cascade, which, by the way, is awesome. Anyway, we chose to be seated outside because the weather was lovely and the view of the 28th Street traffic was... Well, the weather was lovely. Anyway, we were sipping on our chosen beverages, listening to some Frank Sinatra music play through the speakers, feeling pretty back to normal when it happened. The doors of the urgent care clinic next door opened, and two nurses came out in full hazmat suits. They looked like astronauts. They walked over to a minivan whose window suddenly rolled down and then proceeded to reach through said window with a foot-long cotton swab. Then, less than 30 seconds later, they returned to the clinic as the minivan sped off. And all this happened less than 15 feet from where Randy and I were having lunch. For a moment, I seriously thought I was in like a Will Smith end of the world movie. And then my corned beef Reuben arrived and we went on with our conversation. I tell you that in order to ask you to pray for us to have wisdom as we try to balance safety and experience in our reopening plan. But please know that we love you and can't wait to see you again. Anyway, today we get to continue a series we've called All the Same. And as I mentioned last week, it's material that's very personal for me. You see, way back in the day as an 18-year-old college freshman, I began to have conversations with people from other faith backgrounds. And I found them fascinating. I had grown up here in West Michigan, surrounded by people who generally believed what I believed. I had never had the opportunity to learn from people who had been raised with different religious assumptions. So when I finally did, I, I was surprised by how much religions have in common. They all teach their followers to do good things. If you thought about it this way, they teach them to give and, and to serve and to love and, and to fight for what's right and to be the change you want to see in the world. They organize things like soup kitchens and food pantries. I mean, with all the similarities, it's natural to wonder. I mean, aren't all religions the same? Well, that question drove me to dig deep into the roots of my faith, while at the same time trying to figure out why religions so often look similar. I came to see that religions often look similar because they begin with a similar impulse to connect with the divine and are all designed to try and answer similar questions. Questions like, well, who is God? And can he be known? And can I be forgiven? Is there life after this life? Historically, humans all over the world have been convinced that there is more to life than what our eyes can see. It's like it's hardwired in us to seek. Consequently, humans all over the world have built temples and altars and established traditions to try to bridge the gap between people and God. 
between the sacred and the secular, between the unknown and the known. You might say that religious systems are built by humans somewhat blindly reaching up, trying to connect and maintain peace with the supernatural. In fact, that was the case in all religious systems until around 2,000 years ago when a religion was launched under a very different set of circumstances. To show you what I mean, I want to take you to a conversation recorded for us in the book of Acts in the New Testament of the Bible. Now, as you may recall, most of the book of Acts records the story of a man named Paul. Last week, uh, we explored the moment when he first became a Christian and received his commission to take the message of Jesus to the world. Well, as we enter the story today, Paul is in the city of Athens, Greece. Here's a picture. And he's almost a thousand miles away from the city of Jerusalem where Jesus had been crucified. While he's waiting for a couple of his traveling companions, he takes in the sights and he's highly disturbed by what he sees. You see, in the first century, Athens was a center of art and philosophy and religion in the Roman Empire, a fact which plays strongly into the story as it continues. Here's how the author sets up the scene for us. That he writes, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Apparently, everywhere Paul looked, there were statues representing the Greek and Roman gods. That demonstrated to him that the people of Athens, though very religious, weren't very certain Apparently, everybody believed there was a divine realm, but they weren't in agreement as to what to believe about it. Well, the account continues. It says, so Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. The author wants us to know that Paul was on a mission to tell everyone he could about Jesus. And he goes first to the synagogues to tell Jewish people, as well as a group he calls God-fearing Greeks, which is a designation for non-Jewish people who had come to believe in the God of the Jews. And then he tells us Paul goes to the marketplace to engage people in the general population in religious conversations. Well, the story continues. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now, Epicurean philosophers taught that the purpose of life was to seek pleasure. And they didn't believe that there was life after death at all. Stoic philosophers, on the other hand, didn't believe the divine was knowable. So they encouraged people to focus their energies on self-discipline. But just notice with me that these two philosophical camps had developed very different answers to life's biggest questions. And so Paul meets with a group of philosophers and begins to debate with them. He argued that they needed to reconsider everything they believed in light of Jesus. And they respond as you might suspect they would respond. The author tells us some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. In reality, Paul's message was so unique, they didn't have a grid to process it. 
The ideas Paul was presenting were fundamentally incompatible with the way they saw the world. He was suggesting that they needed to reboot everything they believed about God because of what God had done in and through Jesus. It's easy to miss the true significance of what Paul was suggesting here. He moved a religious conversation from the realm of the philosophical and theological into the real world. And the philosophers of Athens would have been confused. Because you see, all of their religion had been about ideas, trying as best they could to describe something that might be. But, but Paul was talking about something that had really happened in real time and space and in their day. Instead of people blindly reaching up, Paul proclaimed that God, in and through the person of Jesus Christ, had come down and brought something that wasn't possible any other way. Certainty. Intrigued, the philosophers decide to investigate further. And as the story continues, the author tells us they took Paul and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was basically a court where teachers were interviewed to determine whether or not they would be allowed to present their ideas in the marketplace. So Paul is brought before the philosophical authorities who ask him to begin at the beginning. They said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. And then the author tells us something interesting. He says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Doing nothing but talking about listening to the latest ideas. I love that. Uh, it's like there's a group of people who stood around all day and debated what was truth. It kind of reminds me of my sophomore philosophy class in college. Anyway, the story continues. Uh, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. He goes on, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now that's great. It seems like the Athenian people thought like a lot of people today. They, they, they didn't know what to think about God. So they got religious and they got superstitious. They didn't know how to get it to rain. So they put up a shrine just in case there was a rain God. And they didn't know how to protect their children. So they put up a temple just in case there was a God who offered to protect children. Apparently, they didn't know if they had identified all the gods, so they put up a temple to an unknown god just in case that god ever showed up and demanded to see their temple. And they could be like, well, it's, it's right over here. Before you judge them, though, consider that we all know people who tend to do the same sorts of things. People who aren't at all sure about God, but still come to church twice a year on Christmas and Easter just in case. Some people would tell you that they don't even really believe in God, but they still give money to charity, just in case. I even have a former Catholic friend who recently confessed. She still goes to confession once a year, just in case. And to be clear, these, these, these friends are not sure what they believe. They have more questions than answers, but they don't want to accidentally offend somebody to whom they may need to give an account someday. Well, apparently the same sort of thinking was going on in the ancient world. The philosophers of Athens had lots of ideas, 
but no certainty. And so when Paul sees the altar dedicated to the unknown God, he leverages it as an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. He says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And the word ignorant in the original language wasn't nearly really that offensive. It was more like, so you're uncertain of the very thing you worship. But Paul says like, you've already acknowledged that there's a gap in your knowledge. And and I want to fill in that gap. You're religious, but you're not confident. And now because of Jesus, you really can be. And as he continues, Paul launches into an amazing sermon. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He goes on, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. In other words, Paul looks at these philosophical authorities and says, God is bigger than your religion. The temples you build can't possibly contain him. And it's good that you believe in him, but you're thinking too small. He can't fit into your religious system and he won't live inside your box. Moreover, he doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't take. He's a giver. In fact, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. This unknown God is is ultimately the source. He's the provider for every good thing, for everyone, whatever their religion. Paul goes on. He says, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And, And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And it's easy to miss, but with that one statement, Paul pretty much dissed the entire Greco-Roman view of the divine realm. He argues that there's one God, not many. Moreover, this God is the one who established and actively maintains all of humanity. And as he continues, Paul affirms the impulse behind religion. He he sort of compliments them. He says this, he says, God did this so that they would seek him. In other words, that people everywhere would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and, and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. It's like Paul wants us to see the essence of all religion is to reach up to God and hopefully to find him. And Paul points out that all religion, all the statues and temples and traditions are attempts to connect with God. And the good news is that God wants to connect with us too. And as Paul continues, he does something a bit unexpected. He actually quotes from Greek philosophers. It was a line that would have been really familiar to his audience. He says, for in him we live and move And have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He goes on, therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. And then this is great. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, such such uncertainty. In the past, It's like Paul says, listen, up until now, it made sense for you to build a statue or a temple to focus your worship. In the past, it made sense because you didn't know any better, or maybe you couldn't know any better. You couldn't understand what God was like. In the past, God overlooked your mistakes because 
because you didn't know. And he isn't angry at your rituals and traditions and the fact that you've tried to approach him in your own way. But now he says something new has happened. Paul says, but now, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And I know like if you grew up in church, repent is is a word you only hear in church. And when you think of repent, you probably think change what you do. Like you have some bad habits and you need to repent. But the Greek word for repent really means to change your mind. And so it's like Paul is saying, now is the time to change your thinking about God and how to approach him. Now is the time to put away some of the things you've leaned on and, and God has put up with. It's like God understands your ignorance, but now something new has happened. And now it's time to repent, to open your heart to the fact that God, God has taken another step towards us all. Paul explains as he continues, For he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This was the game-changing moment in the conversation with the Athenian philosophers because Paul notes that whereas all their religion had been about reaching up, now, now God has made contact. God has come down. He's made himself known in the person of Jesus And because he knew they would be skeptical, because because it's so different than anything they were expecting, God decided to prove Jesus' identity in real space and time, in human history. Not, Not in theology or philosophy or in your heart. He proved it by raising Jesus from the dead. And hundreds and hundreds of people had seen him. As the account continues, we learn that that some of the people of Athens rejected Paul's teaching. They they scoffed at him and walked away. But others, others leaned in and eventually placed their faith in Jesus. Which brings me to my point for today, which, which is also our big idea. It goes like this. Jesus didn't come to answer the questions religion was asking. He came to be the answer. In the conversation with the Athenian philosophers, Paul affirms the impulse behind all religion to reach up in an attempt to connect with God and to find answers to fundamental questions. But he also proclaimed the news that in Jesus, God had come down and that we no longer had to live our lives wondering. Because of Jesus, we can know with certainty what God is like. If you think about it, it's the best of all possible scenarios. It's the best thing imaginable. God wants to be known and he's made himself known. Not in a teaching or a document or a philosophy or a theology. God has made himself known because he came into this world through the person of Jesus Christ, died on a cross and then rose from the dead, proving once and for all that he's in control of both life and death. And he offers himself to people of all religions And that changes everything. I mean, think about it. Religion is concerned with determining what God wants from us, but Christianity is built on what God has done for us. Religion is concerned with the type of sacrifice they need to make in order to gain God's acceptance, but Christianity is built on the sacrifice God made on our behalf in Jesus. You might even say that Jesus is the end of all our religious wondering and wandering, he is the answer. 
Now, I love that Paul didn't walk onto the Areopagus and say, listen, guys, all your religions are wrong about everything. Instead, he affirmed that they were asking the right questions. Who is God? Can he be known? Can I be forgiven? Is there eternal life? And the great news Paul brought them and and ultimately brought us is, is that God has answered those questions in their generation in and through the person of Jesus. Because Because throughout his ministry, Jesus would say things like, if you want to know what God is like, watch me. And then after his death and resurrection, his first followers would say things like, if you want to know if God loves you, look to the cross. Anyone who would give his one and only son for you is for you. And if you wonder if there really is life after death, consider the historical reality of the empty tomb. He rose so we too someday will rise. See, more than simply coming to answer the questions religion was asking, Jesus came to be the answer. And friends, that makes all the difference in the world. We get to end our time together today by by taking communion. And so if you haven't yet, feel free to go and grab some bread and some juice. In a moment, the band is going to play a song and, and you'll be able to serve one another communion. But before that, though, let me remind you of what we're about to do. We're about to step into a tradition that goes back 2,000 years. And, and people have taken communion in cathedrals and in caves and in schools and in homes On the last night of his life, Jesus had a meal with his first followers. And during that meal, he took some bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And when you eat it, remember me. And then he took a cup of wine and he lifted it up. And he said, this cup represents a new covenant, a new testament, a new relationship between people and God, a new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of of sins. And he says, when you drink it, remember me. So for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have gathered around the bread and the cup to remember Jesus' body broken and his blood spilled so that we could have peace with God. And so this morning, wherever you find yourself, surrounded by family and friends, or perhaps even by yourself, but gathered with us online, I'd like to invite you to come to the table to remember, to give thanks, and to sense once again how much you are loved by your heavenly Father. I'd encourage you to wait a minute or so and just sort of listen to the words of the song the band is about to perform. And and then when you're ready, take some bread and dip it in the cup. Remember and celebrate.